Let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, and uh, I'll just say thank you for those of you that have uh, said you hope that we had a good vacation. Uh, This time last week, uh, we were in Athens, Georgia, and I was baptizing our 12th grandchild, and uh, all of our children and grandchildren were there. So, yes, we had a good vacation. Thank you for that. As you are able, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read the entire psalm today. To the choir master, a psalm of David. When Nathan, the prophet, went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You'll not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. We need this, Lord. Whether we have faced up to our sin or not, we need your mercy, your abundant mercy. And so we would pray that from this passage you would teach us this day, open our hearts, open our ears, our minds to you, that we too would rejoice and take joy in our Redeemer 
We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Be seated. Well, he was known as the great blasphemer. The great blasphemer. What a name. He had, since the age of 11, lived at sea and done it in the worst of ways. He had a reputation for uh, profanity, coarseness, debauchery that even shocked other sailors. Those of you that were sailors know what that means. Not only did he reject Christ, but he led other sailors in that direction to reject Christ, to reject God. His life sank so low that at one point he was actually the servant of slaves in Africa. His name was John Newton. Yes, the same John Newton that wrote the words to Amazing Grace. He spent the last 43 years of his life preaching the glorious gospel of Christ, and he never ever lost the amazement that God could use someone like him. He knew what his life had been. He knew more than anyone else, but he knew God knew even more. And yet, by his grace, he used him. On Newton's tombstone, it reads this. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, A servant of slaves in Africa was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. That's his legacy. So what took him from being the great blasphemer to being the hymn-writing pastor that has touched all of our lives, I'm sure, through not only Amazing Grace, but other hymns that he wrote. We're going to talk about it in a few minutes, what took him to that point. Today, we're going to finish our four-part study in Psalm 51, four-week study, and we're going to pick up with verse 13. Uh, I would encourage you, if you're just coming into our study at this point, go back. This is not a plug, but it will help you understand the context as we have talked about what caused all of this, what brought him to this point, David to this point, uh, his his. Uh, knowledge of his need for forgiveness, and then 
we see an application really at the end of this psalm. We read in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. So he's talking about, okay, I've, I've been forgiven. And he's talking about now a renewed witness. So what does he mean when he says, I'll teach transgressors your ways? What ways? What does he want to teach other sinners, other transgressors? What does he want them to know uh, about the way God works? Well, David's in a position of teaching others the loving hand of God and that God will not let your sin be suppressed. The work of God that can cleanse from sin, that can create a a new, a clean heart. He's in a position to teach that. He's experienced that. Now, we know of at least one place, and I'm sure there are many, but at least one place explicitly where he did what he said he wanted to do here in Psalm 51, and that is in Psalm 32 that we read earlier. And most believe that that's actually, even though it comes earlier in the, in the Psalter that it's a, a follow-up to uh, Psalm 51. So let me remind you, let's listen to how David taught transgressors God's ways in Psalm 32. He said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. He wants other transgressors to know that, that there is a place of, of blessing, but it's after you're forgiven, the one whose sin is covered, that God is a God who can cover sin. You can't, I can't, but he can and does for his people. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. And then he talks a little bit more about his experience. He says this, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. So when he was covering up, maybe nobody else knew this. But this was what was going on inside of him. But then he explains it. It wasn't because he had such a tender conscience. He said, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and then here is God's ways, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Those are God's ways. And the desire that we see here with with David to teach others, that's a fruit of repentance. That shows that repentance was actually genuine. The desire to tell others, not to cover up, but to tell them not so much about his sin, but of God's great forgiveness. That's teaching others. And there's no better teacher than one who has been there. Now, don't get me wrong. 
That doesn't mean that only an adulterer can minister to an adulterer or a murderer is the only one that can minister to a murderer. That's not the case. But it has to be someone who understands the depth of their sin and understands how great God's forgiveness is. That's what it takes to be able to testify of God's forgiveness. So how do we, how do we know how deep our sin is? Well, the more mature we grow in Christ, the more we will come to grips with the depths of our sin. Let me give you an example. Uh, in the New Testament, we see with the Apostle Paul, he says uh, this in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, this would be, I want you to follow. This is a progression, okay, in time. This would be about 58 AD. He describes himself as the least of all apostles, okay? I'm the, you know, all those great apostles, I'm the least of them. Four years later, 62 AD, he wrote in Ephesians 3 that he was the least of all God's people. Four years later, at the end of his life, in 66 AD, he writes in 1 Timothy, I am the worst of sinners. Now, I don't believe that his behavior and his sin got worse and worse throughout his life. Here's what happened. He got to know Jesus better. And the closer he got to Jesus, the more he saw his own reflection. And the more he saw that he, he was indeed still standing in such need of forgiveness that he saw himself, in essence, worse when everyone else would have said, oh, no, 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 you're way better than you used to be by looking at him outwardly. David goes on and he says, verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Now, blood guilt is the penalty for murder. So here, here he comes the closest to talking specifically about some of his sin but he's basically saying, look, I, I deserve the penalty for murdering someone else. And he's speaking of it outwardly. The truly repentant person will do that. The really repentant person will not use euphemisms for their, their, their sin. Oh, yeah, I made a bad mistake. Yeah, it's a bad mistake. David said, it's a sin against God who is holy. He's not hiding his guilt. But he is especially not hiding what God has done for him. Now, here's something, I, I'm kind of a side note here. Even though he acknowledges his sin and he, that's, Fairly specific, so when he talks about uh, blood guiltiness, 
people would know, okay, well, there's murder involved in there. But he doesn't go into the gory details of his sin, does he? In his testimony, he doesn't talk about that. And and this is appropriate. I have heard evangelists and pastors and others giving testimony that when they gave their testimony, they got so specific about their sin that they were probably causing others to sin because they were thinking about those sins. When they heard salacious details and then it becomes about that person instead of about God's great forgiveness. So we always need to be careful with that. It's just not necessary, and it can be hurtful to others. Then he goes on. He says, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, verse 15, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Here he goes from a a renewed witness to a, a renewed worship now. The forgiven, the really forgiven, can't keep themselves from worship can't help it. It, It's bubbling up within him because of how deep his forgiveness was in his life. But notice, he's really in touch with himself here. He is committing every act to God. He doesn't even trust himself to open up his own Lips, He says, oh, Lord, open my lips. Why do you think he doesn't trust himself? Because he knows when he opened his lips with his plans, it's lies. That's what he did to cover up, to plot. So he says, you know what? I don't even trust myself to open my lips. Lord, you open my lips because if you do it, then it will be fruitful. It'll be good. It will be worship. And then verse 16. For you will, do not, you do, will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You'll not be pleased with a burnt offering. So how could David say that? Who came up with the idea of sacrifices and burnt offerings in the Old Testament? God was the one that prescribed those. So why does, why does David say, you'll not delight in sacrifice? You'll not be pleased with burnt offerings? Well, because the Old Testament sacrifices and offerings never forgave sin. They had a meaning. They pointed to the one who would fulfill every single one of them. They pointed to the ultimate sacrifice that would forgive sin. They pointed to Jesus Christ and his perfect, final, complete work on the cross. The book of Hebrews fleshes that out all over the place. Let me just point to one place in Hebrews 10. 
it, it explains it just in one paragraph. It says, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And then here's, here's what it explains. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's a perfect sacrifice. He goes on, he says, and every priest stands daily at his service uh, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away your sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit? Because his work of atonement, his sacrifice was over. He didn't have to continually sacrifice because his was perfect. And there was never again and there will never again be a need for sacrifice because of Christ. So back to what David said, you'll not delight in sacrifice, I would give it. You'll not be pleased with burnt offerings. God is not impressed with a person that can kill an animal. In other words, no outward form alone could pay for sin. But David says, if it could, if there was a sacrifice that I could do to pay for my sin, God, I would do it. That's what he's explaining here. But he knows there isn't. So now he clarifies then what he's learned. He says, verse 17, uh, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So here's what God wants. Repentance, not penance. You get it? Some religions teach that, okay, if you confess your sin, now you need to go do penance. Say these things, repeat this over and over, and, and, and that then you'll be forgiven. Or some say, okay, if you want to be forgiven, then do something to your body that'll make it hurt, and, and then God will see you're serious, and, and you've done penance, and, and then you can be forgiven. And he says, no way. It doesn't work that way. He says, it's, it's about our heart. And what he says is a broken and contrite heart. Contrite means to be crushed, ground into fine powder. <laughs> you see what he's saying? God wants our hearts, when we have sinned, to be broken. He wants us to die and then be forgiven and resurrected. And he 
wants our heart to agonize over sin, but not to despair. That's the difference. We don't give up because as we agonize, as we come to grips with our sin and we recognize forgiveness, then God can open our lips and we can rejoice because, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. The sacrifice that God desires is a heart that's so broken that it realizes it's got nothing to offer to God. Last week in our worship here, you sang, nothing in my hands I bring only to the cross. I cling. See, that's it. It's not God, forgive me, because here, I'm, I'm giving you this, or I'm doing this for you. It's, I got nothing. My heart is crushed to dust. And then God renews that heart. Verse 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. So here what we see is that David recognizes the ramifications of his sin and that the only hope for restoration is if God does a work. He knew he was forgiven, but he also knew that his sin affected not only other people, but, but the kingdom. Zion, he speaks of, was a, a hill in Jerusalem where David, David's son Solomon built the temple. David, understanding the broad ramifications of his sin, said, I don't want worship to be hindered because of me. He's understanding that this isn't just a personal thing where, look, I'll take care of it. It doesn't affect any of you people. He knew better. We may not be a national figure, but our sins affect others as well. Don't kid yourself if you think that I'm only hurt myself, so leave me alone. If you're if you're a believer, you're a part of the body of Christ. And just like our physical bodies, if one part fails, the whole body is affected. And that's the case when we sin. And we need to understand and ask God to restore that. So we've seen David's sin. We've seen God's grace in not letting David get away with that sin. And we've seen God's forgiveness of David the sinner. Not only did he forgive David, but he restored David. Not only did he restore him, but he used David. And not only did he use him, but he made a covenant with him. In that covenant, God promised the coming of Jesus 
and that he would come through David's lineage. Imagine that. After all we've learned about, about David. Here's what God said to David. He said, look, when you get close to your death, I'll continue your lineage. And through one of your own descendants, I will establish my kingdom. And that kingdom is going to last forever. David was so amazed at that. What, you're making a covenant with me? He was so amazed that, that God was so full of grace to forgive him and establish him and make a covenant with him and even give the Redeemer through his lineage that here's what David said. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? 2,800 years later, John Newton read that exclamation of David. And it inspired him to write, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Shortly before Newton's death, he said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Amen.